And you take with you, uh, we're not into the competition thing. We want to show that you participated, but I want you to squash all the other churches. Got it? Just squash them, just like a bug. And we're just, we just, we are proud of you, and you take with you the mantle of this church, and we're grateful for you, and we are going to pray for you while you're standing. Stay standing, all young people, and let's pray together as a church. Father, we are so grateful to be of service in your kingdom, so grateful to have your word to tell us how to live, and so grateful to know that we can be used by you in powerful ways to touch others with the truth. And as we make efforts at this church to teach young people to do that and take the mantle of that leadership and that influence in a very formal way through the training of this church and through the training of different talents, we pray, Father, that each of these young people not only learn the the techniques, but learn the reasons why they're important, and that they take a sense of responsibility for the talents they have and put them to use for you, and that you, for the rest of their lives, use them mightily in your service. And as they're going to lads to leaders, yes, it's going to be fun. Yes, it's going to be pressure-filled, and there is competition to it, and we're grateful for that element. But the most important thing is we're, we're praying for the souls of these young people to be real and genuine with the talents they have. Watch over them and help them to use them. Help them to take special pride in what you've given them and responsibility for it and help them to know that they've got the love of this church behind them, whatever they do, wherever they go with these talents. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. This morning I am going to start a sermon by finishing the last one. I dealt last time with what is called hyperbole and exaggeration, or at least I attempted to, and I ended up kind of what you would call a dangling participle instead. It turned into overstatement, which made some things happen that were not intended and unfortunate. I ran through where truth tells you to stop and spoke in an area where Jesus and Paul never have said anything specific about particular cases. And this is always a dangerous spot to be in. And then once there, I underspoke, emphasizing general truths to the minimization of the hard work that each of those truths represent and demand. There is grace and forgiveness, and there is repentance. And yes, it does start with confession. All of that is true, but it has to include the hard work of grappling with Scripture and making sure things are as right as possible. My sweeping words about, or actually hid, the hard work and by doing so, it made some walk away feeling emboldened to sin because repentance is easy. One person responded and said, you're saying I could get out of my marriage and start another and then turn around and say, oops, and that's all. And I just cringe. Something's not quite right about that reception. If a preacher presents a sermon that results in undermining the significance of marriage, he is clearly erred. And I had enough people say that that's what it did for them. That it caused them to think that two Christians marry, then have a failed marriage. They go and form other marriages, and it's no big deal at all. Shame on me for allowing that thought to creep into your head. It's too simple, too simplified to say that repentance like that offers a total assurance for something we don't have assurance for. This whole topic wearies me. It's a heavy-hearted thing, and I urge you, avoid this spot. 
avoid it. There is a stop sign there. We all agree marriage is God-ordained and that kingdom people, we don't divorce, we keep our word, and we want to do what God wants us to do. Jesus says that. And last time I even wondered, why did he go no further? And I ended up instead illustrating exactly why. I was so consumed with this this week, talking to different people, and I'm going to be continuing this grappling for weeks to come. I'm going to research this the best of my heart uh, as ability. But in the middle of this week, about Thursday, a friend called me about a friend of mine in Kennedy who passed away. He's the coroner, the coroner of Dunklin County, and he's single. And he calls me, and I'm sitting in the midst of this, Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 5, and I pick up the phone and I say, James! And he says, Spencer! And I said, James, don't you ever marry. I knew that this is consuming me. And I said, if you do, if you ever think about divorce, you're going to need the coroner. And he said, what's the big deal? I said, you just need to study this out. I say to you, sit down with Scripture yourself. Don't follow a preacher's advice alone. Study Scripture yourself and study marriage and be honest about your own and study repentance and follow the Word, not just what anyone says. Remember, too, that we are family in various stages of understanding and maturity, and we must have patience to grapple with this together. And we cannot look around and constantly talk about other people's situations, especially when we don't know anything about them. There ends up being way too much talking and chatting and using people as fodder for uh, conjecture, and that's dangerous for everyone. It comes back to this, and maybe this is walking it back. Kingdom people know the covenant they make, and they carry this thing through. This won't clear everything up from a wrecked hyperbolic demonstration from last week, and I regret any damage it does to anyone's proper, very high view of what Scripture has to say about marriage and how we need to hold on to that. And it's the perfect, Terry, segue into the next passage, which is exactly the same relation. I think maybe Jesus on purpose went straight into this next section because it sheds further light on the importance of keeping your word. We live in a culture that has an epidemic of untruth about it. And it creates a desire for everyone to ensure that what I'm hearing from others is the truth. It's amazing what you have to do to protect truth now. You buy a car, you buy a house, and you have to, you have to sign a hundred pages of paper to affirm that you're telling the truth and that you'll pay this off. When you watch a commercial about a drug or something, they have to tell the whole truth, even reading 100,000 miles an hour about all the things that could happen if you take this drug. Or a politician who this is a commercial to represent what he believes, and he has to come on, or she has to come on by the end of the commercial and say, I'm so-and-so, and I approve this message. It's to let you know he's got to attach his name and his reputation to the words. He can't just let somebody else say it for him. We want assurance that people are going to keep their word. This covers vows like marriage. This covers vows like your baptism. This covers promises like if you're able to have children, you need to be able to back up by parenting them too. It's no accident this dishonesty follows on the heels of the explosion of what it means in our culture to tell the truth. Christians, Jesus says, keep their word. 
kingdom people say what they mean and they don't seek to deceive people with crafty sentence structure or sneaky word placement. We don't cloak words in smoky promises or get this, vapory vows. I made that up. What do you think? Vapory vows. It's brilliant. I don't care what you say. Say what you mean. I shouldn't need insurance to be taken out on your words spoken to me. You don't need a bondsman to protect your word. We say what we mean and we do what we say. And Jesus, Jesus is addressing what had become this complicated value system of oaths and, 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 and vows. I want to show you what the Old Testament says just in two or three verses. He's not quoting a particular verse, but Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Do not swear falsely by God's, by God's name and so profane his name. If you swear by his name and don't do it, you're, you're, you're violating God's name. You're taking it in vain. That's what it really means. Then he says, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, when a man vows or he takes an oath to obligate himself to a pledge, he must not break his word but do everything he says. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, if a person makes a vow to the Lord, you're not to be slow to pay it up. God will demand it of you. So an oath, you see, is to say, this is the truth, I swear, that's an oath. And you're going to say to somebody, is that a preacher story? Isn't that a shame they associate preachers with untruth? That's an oath. A vow is, I'm going to perform something in the future, and I swear that I'm going to do it and back it up. A person in the Old Testament was never required to take an oath or a vow. You were never forced to, but you were allowed to. And if you did, if you did make an oath or take a vow on something, you had to all cost pay it up. You could not back yourself out of it. The, irony, the, the weirdest story about this in the book of Judges, which most of you know, Jephthah is out of his mind. I have no idea how to explain this guy, but he's in the Bible, he's there, and he decides one day he's going to fight this battle for God, and he wants God's presence, and he wants God's promise, and so he says to God, God, if you'll give me victory, I'll sacrifice to you the first thing that walks out of my house. That is dumb. What does he think is going to walk out of his house? To walk out of your house, it needs to be alive. Your, your counter, your, your footstool can't walk out of the house. All I'm thinking is, before he left that day, his wife looked at him four times and says, that armor doesn't match. And so he's mad, and he's thinking, I'm going to get rid of her by offering her as a burnt offering to God, right? That's what he's thinking. I don't know. Maybe he had a pet, a pet dog that he wanted to get rid of. Wow, I'll offer a burnt offering. I have a cat like this, and I'm real close taking him to a Chinese place on stadium. But I, I don't know what he's doing. He makes this vow that's totally irrational. And what he doesn't, I guess he doesn't think about it. He gets the victory. He comes back, and guess what the first thing out of his house is? His only child, his daughter, comes out to celebrate her dad's victory, and he drops his head. He offers his daughter as a burnt offering to God. If you are going to say something, as a believer in God, a God who speaks only truth, he cannot lie, neither can his children. If you're going to say something, it needs to be true. 
By the time of Christ, this has been abused. People had these oaths to protect their word. If a person spoke, they may be telling the truth. They may not be telling the truth. And the way they'd back it up is with vows. If they attached a certain vow, an oath to this, they were known to be serious or at least mostly serious about what they say. It made conversations crazy. Listen, don't trust a person who says to you constantly, I swear this is true, I swear this is true, or I promise, I promise, I promise, or the worst one of all, we get this, we accept this. You're talking to somebody, having a conversation, and suddenly they say to you, well, to be perfectly honest, that means everything they've just said may not be. I'm about to be honest with you, but before I was lying, or maybe you wonder, right? Don't trust people who have to back up their words like this. Jesus is not outlawing oaths. He's saying they are totally unnecessary for you as Christians. If you go to a court of law and you put your hand on a Bible, I've done this one time, nothing wrong with it, but I don't need that Bible there, and I don't need that official oath. I just need to know I'm a son of my Father in heaven, and every word needs to be true. Now, here's the weird thing. By the time of Jesus, the value of vows was weird. Notice this. If you swore by God, I'm making this up, not these, the, the percentages. If you swore by God, you're 100% telling the truth. Because nobody, nobody would swear by God without telling the truth. If you swore by heaven, you were 92% trustworthy. So as I swear by heaven, you're like, mm, 9 out of 10 maybe he might. If you swore by earth, you were 83% possibly telling the truth. If you swore by Jerusalem, you were 75% trustworthy. If you swore by your head, that's weird. Who wants to do that? He said, because you cannot color your hair. And I'm going, oh, yes, you can. I see a bunch of them doing it. Well, not back then, you see. Uh, Beetroot or something. I I know some of you, you can swear by your head because you could make it a different color the next night. You're 67%. And here's one I would add. If you swore by your mama's grave, this is not biblical. Don't run out and say this is biblical. I'm just being goofy. You're either 90% chance of being true or 63%. You're like, what tells the difference whether she's living or not? If she's alive, don't trust what they say. The whole idea is you're having a conversation with somebody and he's saying different things to you. And he's planning out different things and he says, I swear this happened. I swear by my mama's grave or I swear by God. And he goes on to another line, I swear by heaven. And suddenly you've got this chart and you're going, well, he's 67% maybe, uh, 90% maybe, 100%. This is complicated. You could see how people wouldn't trust anybody. Everybody's looking for a loophole to practice deceit. So the hearer then needs to practice listening for what you're swearing by. You think this is crazy, don't you? Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is getting on to the Pharisees. And he says, you guys are a bunch of blind guides. Here's what you guys say, and this is what the Pharisees said. If anyone swears by the temple, it's not much of a vow. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he's telling the truth. That's what the Pharisees taught. If you swear by the altar, it doesn't matter. But if you swear by the gifts that are on the altar, they matter. The, the grades, of a pro, grades of allowable lying, you couldn't trust anybody. What in the world has happened? Conversations laced with promises and oaths. Charts to read, well, is this going to be true or not? You could never know when you were talking to somebody whether they were really telling the truth or if they were slanting you. And Jesus says, 
The ultimate level of seriousness needs to be attached to every word we speak, whether there be a vow or not. We're serious about our words. I want this to be practical. Think carefully before you speak. Don't be flippant with your words. Once you say something, be very, very, very conscious of the need, of the obligation to follow through on what you say, even if between the time you said it and have to pay it up, it becomes inconvenient to you. Even then... Back up your words. One of the frustrating things about youth ministry used to be, guys, tell me that you're going on this trip. These tickets or this, this cost for this youth rally is this. And the church pays it because they got this number who signed up. But then, at the, but then a week before, two days before, ten people cancel. It's no cost to them. The church pays the rest. When you say you're going to do something, do something. When you're going to go, go. Too many of us give us allowances to say, oh, if I just don't feel like it at the time or I just suddenly don't want to anymore or something better comes up, I'll just not do this. Christians don't do this. Keep your word. Let your yes mean yes. Which means we need to say no more often. I know as I walk here and as I look out here, some of you are overextended. Some of you are committing to too many things. You want your kids to have everything. You have them in eight sports at once, and you have yourself going here and there, and you say yes to this and that, and it's running you ragged. The Proverbs writer says, make few promises. Life's better that way. Learn to say no. Now, also, here's an addendum. So I just make sure I... When something happens and you either just forget or you can't because something emergent comes up, you are obligated to immediately make amends. Now I'm going to tell you a story and this is not, this is not I didn't make this up just for a sermon. I, I, I've tried to correct this twice since last week and nobody's home. I'll tell you a story that happened. Richard, where was I supposed to be last Sunday? You weren't there. I know. I'm not looking for judgment. I'm looking for an answer. Where was I supposed to be last Sunday? My house. For what? Ribs. For ribs. Did you hear that? He told us a month and a half before this, on this Sunday, come to our house for ribs, right? Totally forgot. Totally forgot. Melissa is at Olive Garden eating when Miss Middleton calls and says, where are you? I'm up here waiting with some people, but where are you? And Melissa says, we're at Olive Garden. She says, where are you supposed to be? Uh, you ever been in this spot? Anybody ever been here? Okay, Richard, I've, been to, I've texted y'all and I've been by your house, and I haven't, but I'm telling you right now, I'm sorry. I blew that one. But I will also tell you God's judgment. You ready for this? A salad. Yes. Now, as I'm eating the salad, I start tasting bits of delicious rib. But it's a phantom thing. And suddenly it turns sour. And I feel terrible. And God's saying, you know where you should have been, boy? 
Did you know where you should have been? You could have had ribs and you got salad. You get salad instead of ribs. And God's saying, there's your discipline. That's all I need to say, right? If you, if you are in a spot like this and you forget, listen, I, I, I see this all the time. People mess up and they, and they, and they, don't shrug it off like it's no big deal because listen, we gave our word. It's supposed to matter, and it's supposed to count, and I should be able to say to you, yes, and you know my word means yes. And why? Because we serve the same God, and we are children of a God, and the family trait, the family trait in the kingdom of God is we tell the truth, we do not deceive. And when you make a mess, mistake, fess up to it immediately. So I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks I'll be eating ribs for lunch, if this sermon illustration worked. I understand why this gets difficult. You slant the truth sometimes. Nobody will know anyway. Or it exaggerates things to make people be impressed. Because people aren't impressed with truth anymore. To get their attention, you have to really make it big. And so if you're talking uh, to the men about the men's retreat and the golfing and stuff, and Jonathan tells you tonight, if he comes tonight, that he won the golf tournament, that's true. But only because those men let him. They really, really let him. It was pathetic what I heard. And then if you hear Paul talk about Levi catching the biggest fish you've ever seen in your life, that fish he caught graduated minnow school an hour before he caught it. This thing, this thing wouldn't feed nothing. We just tell the truth. Don't slant things when you start doing that. Now, some of this we expect it, and it's part of fun and part of humor. But if you intentionally slant things this way, you will grow to accept that in other areas of life where it's not funny. Maybe to make ourselves look a little more impressive than we really are or to get out of a situation where we would look bad if we tell the truth. When you call and you say, I left my message with LeVon, why didn't you call back? And I'm just going to honestly say, I was too busy with other things. I, I'm not going to make up and say, well, I tried and blah, blah. No, just say the truth. It will make you look bad. I look bad a lot by that. Just do the best. Tell the truth. Maybe to, maybe to make your case look more impressive than it actually is. Have you ever heard politicians use statistics to build up their cases and you hear two of them on two different sides use the same thing and they argue different ways and you're like, who's telling the truth? There's no way to know whether politicians are telling the truth or not with their statistics. Or to increase a financial benefit to you. Jonathan goes around right now and he's preaching different places and, and one of his things with the resident ministry is learning how preachers do their taxes and it's a different animal altogether. And we were going through this and he said, what now, you know, we were, ta we were just talk bantering back and forth and I s he was saying, you know, these churches that just give you a couple hundred dollars for coming on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, the IRS would never know. I said, that's true, they never would. But... But what? God knows, and he's who you're accountable to the most. God knows. You can't do that. And, and to make things a little more convenient for you, there are some people say, yeah, I'll, I'll call around and find the best deal on this pizza for this youth retreat or something. And they call one place, and that's it. And they say, yeah, I called for Tell the truth. When you sell your integrity, you got nothing. 
Don't exaggerate, don't embellish, don't stretch to deceive. Our entire culture is doing this all the time, from presidential tweets to people who are reporting on hurricanes. I remember a hurricane being reported. This reporter said, and this house right here, totally destroyed. It had a little bitty tree hanging over the carport. And I was looking at the picture, and I was hearing his words, and I was going, why are you saying totally demolished when I'm looking at it? And yes, it is significant, but it's not totally demolished. Why do we have to exaggerate? Why does everything have to be awesome? Why can't things just be good? Because I'm telling you, when I sing awesome God, and I think that this past week I had awesome pizza, we had an awesome this and an awesome that, suddenly when I sing awesome God, it's not all that awesome. Very few things are awesome. But when everything becomes that, nothing is. Be careful with our words. Our God is truth, and we are grateful for that. We live our lives upon that absolute truth. We can 100% bank our entire existence upon this and what he says. And we want to know something. We can consult his word. And because we're his children, we follow suit. No matter what anyone else says, when God says it, it settles it. And in the Bible, that's taught clearly. When something is taught clearly... You don't have to take research. You don't have to take polls. You don't have to be afraid that a new finding will suddenly call into question that truth. God has settled it. He doesn't lie. And he even swears by himself that he will not lie. And then when we give a Bible answer, we can have full confidence we'll never be embarrassed when we give that answer. And when we stick with the truth, we can't be wrong. No embellishment, no debate, no alteration. We've honored the God of truth. And that covers, by the way, the words we say to other people. Because no matter where you are in the world, no matter who you're talking to, believer or non, when you say a word to them, God is your witness, and He will also be your jury, and He will also be your judge about what you just said. Make it true. Make it true. So I wrap up this morning just saying this. Some things are absolute and always true. No matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, coming to God in repentance and confession and being immersed is what you do to be saved. True. True now. True for our grandparents. True in the first century. True if the world exists at the year 4550. True. And if you've struggled with sin and fallen away, it's equally clear what you must do. Come back to God. Confess with your lips your sin. Repent. Do those works in keeping with repentance. And in particular, if you've struggled valuing simple telling of truth as you should, be in prayer that God points out to you your tendency to stretch truth, to deceive and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you in those moments. Today I urge you to walk away determined to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. And He will because you're His child. If you're subject to the truth, or if you're a committer of untruth, the call is for you as we stand and as we sing to encourage you.